Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 42, The Human System. Well, welcome to History Against the Grain, episode 42. We are here this week with a very special guest that we want to get to in a second. But there's obviously some some big news we want to uh, just t- talk briefly about before we, we do get to that. We do. You know, as we were... Um Working on some of the preliminaries yesterday, the verdict from the Derek Chauvin murder trial in Minnesota were, were announced, and uh, the verdict was announced, and uh, the uh, judgment was guilty, uh, three times guilty, right, on each of the charges uh, against Chauvin for the murder of George uh, Floyd. And, uh, you know, we wanted to, to acknowledge that because by the time the uh, episode uh, premieres later this week. Uh, most folks, of course, will have uh, already uh, heard ab- about this. Uh, and so rather than just uh, leave it hanging in the air, you know, we, we were thinking that uh, it, it was initially the, the pandemic, I guess, huh, Josh, that had us, you know, thinking in, in global terms. Uh, we couldn't have imagined what was going to happen at the end of May last year with the uh, with George Floyd's killing and how that would unleash uh, a second global movement for racial justice that went a long way in defining uh, what we saw as our uh, kind of, our, I guess, our mission here huh, with history against the grain. Yeah, um, and you're, you're right. It starts with the pandemic, but there's almost this, this second founding moment is, is, as you said, you know, the end of May and with this, um, you know, video uh extrajudicial murder i guess we i mean we can now officially call it that right, right the, the right. courts have 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 spoken but um so yeah i mean it really provided us with with kind of a new purpose and a new um a, a new sense of 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 drive and you know we, we've talked so much about how there's this need to not just take this you know this weird kind of stance of objectivity to not pretend like we can be neutral uh, we quoted Robin D.G. Kelly a couple episodes ago where, where he, he talks about, you know, the idea that objectivity is not what we should be going for, that, you know, as he sees it, there's something wrong with the world and it's our job to try to create a better world out of it. So, you know, it's not like we didn't know this prior to um, to the murder of, of, of George Floyd, but it, it certainly, you know, heightened that sense that we all have a part to play in trying to create this this better world. And, and as much as possible, as much as we can do, you know, as a, as a podcast um, and as historians, we, you know, really became more dedicated to to this mission of, of trying to tell better stories to try to help construct uh, a, a better vision of the world or what the world could be and what it has been, I guess. Yeah, that's really well said. You know, this idea of, of moral clarity that we had mm-hmm. started on uh, in, in the aftermath of last May, you know, uh, Wesley Lowry, the journalist, the black journalist, had been talking about that. And, and we sort of picked up uh, that thread and, and wanted to bring, 
you know, that kind of, um, you know, conviction to to the podcast. And I, I guess, I, you know, as I saw the verdicts come across yesterday, I felt different things. You know, I'd be lying if, if I didn't feel, you know, a kind of emotional reaction. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe it. You know, is it is it relief? You know, is it a, a kind of, you know, you know, something almost kind of a, a righteous, righteous uh, confirmation of something. But, you know, I, I listen, I whether it's the American uh, justice system, American policing, you know, civil rights, et cetera. Uh, you know, nobody's kidding anybody here. Right. You know, this is this is a single moment. It's an important moment, certainly. And I'm always willing to say what's the right time to do the right thing. Any time is the right time to do the right thing. Right. But uh, but yeah. it comes on, uh, you know, a long train. I, I, you probably saw the the stats, right? I mean, since the trial had started, the Chauvin trial had started, the number of police killings in this country, you know, mm -hmm. had, had sort of multiplied almost exponentially. Right. You know, in, in a yeah. kind of uh, continuing course of of. Uh, you know, police violence. And so, you know, uh, we've also tried to then consider the historical roots of this, you know, in systemic terms, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. the system is still the system. You know, one, uh, despite the comments of the president and some others, you know, public figures who celebrated this verdict, it doesn't mean, therefore, that somehow the, the system itself, whether it be the judicial system, justice system, system of policing, et cetera, has changed. It hasn't. It's still very much vested in those concerns of, of power, you know, racial uh, interests, moneyed interests, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I, I think in our own search uh, for, for an understanding of this, uh, we've dedicated many episodes. Now, uh, today's episode in particular uh, with uh, with Patrick Manning, you know, follows in that, uh, you know, in that train of, of, of attempting to understand, you know, in, in, in this case, the, the big picture of how these systems get created and uh, how they evolve, et cetera. So I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy to have this uh, sort of, you know, lucky confluence of, uh, you know, of, of inquiry today, right, with uh, with Pat and uh, and these these concerns that have kind of propelled us all along with history against the grain. Yeah, and let's not let's not uh, wait any longer. Let's get to this interview, because this is this is one that's really important to me. Um, I talked about this a little bit in the intro, but but Pat was my uh, advisor in grad school and um, was, you know, just a hugely formative figure in my, my own intellectual life. So so getting a chance to talk to him in this way was just such a, um, a thrill and, and, and something that, um, you know, it, it's hard to express how, how important this was to me. So um, let's get to it. Let's let's talk to Pat Manning. Well, we are thrilled to have on the podcast today, Dr. Patrick Manning. Pat is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of World History Emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh. And from 2008 to 2015, he served as a founding director of the World History Center there. And before that, he was a longtime faculty member and also director of the World History Center at Northeastern University, where I studied under his 
able tutelage, uh, and eventually got my PhD in the world history program that he created there. And for the past 30 plus years, Pat has been really one of the most prominent advocates for the field of world history. Through his teaching, his collaborations, his scholarship, and his leadership, Pat has done more than maybe any single person in elevating world history as a field. And I should note that without Pat, I would not have my doctorate in world history, both because the program at Northeastern would not, not have existed without him, and because he was also an incredibly kind, generous, and dedicated advisor and mentor. As I made my way through graduate school, we call this podcast History Against the Grain, and few people have worked so, so tirelessly against the grain of the field of history than our guest today. So welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Chris. It's, it's wonderful to be among you. Um, um, now I have to live up to uh, that introduction, but um, hope to have fun during the discussion. So I wanted, I wanted to start because your, your training was actually uh, as an Africanist, but you made this world historical turn at some point in your life. Um, can you talk a little about how you came to see hit history through that, that global lens um, that's become such a part of your, you know, your identity as a, as, as a scholar? I've had to think about this a lot, especially because as an Africanist, one always had to face the question, why are you studying Africa? Um, and um, uh, so, uh, but I, um, I do want to say that my upbringing as a child was one that uh, involved uh, uh, a very um, cosmopolitan, world-oriented, and really multidisciplinary view. Rather than to tell stories about it, I'll just ask you to compare mm -hmm. me to my brother. My brother's a year and a half younger than me. So here I am writing a, a big book on uh, uh, world history for all of the um, time of humanity, and he is finishing up a major article on, uh, on uh, cosmology of the universe as a whole. He's, he's taking on the Big Bang Theory. He finished a PhD at, uh, wow. really in his 60s at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, and, but just that the two of us have, even though we haven't spent that much time together over the years, but we've each had a, a different sort of a um, global uh, approach to things that is a lot of fun to exchange with him and that tells you, we don't know how, but somehow, about our upbringing. Somehow it got in there, yeah. Beyond that, but anyhow, I did a I did an undergraduate uh, um, program at 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 Caltech uh, where I got actually a lot of good introduction to Africa, uh, contemporary Africa through a, a, ge a geography instructor I had, Ned Munger, and went off to the University of Wisconsin to study African history, and um, that was early days of African history. People had come from a lot of different fields into it. Um, so myself with a chemistry background, I wasn't actually that weird amongst the group. <laughs> um, and, um, but so there's just the devotion to Africa and the, the immensity of the topic. The fact that with Africa, you need to think about really early times right. as well as just contemporary times. The particular, I had the good fortune to have a, a um, a program that gave attention to language at the time when Joseph Greenberg was just finishing up the classifications of African languages. That's been really important. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so then um, uh, the, the ex uh, extension from Africa to other parts of the world was, it was part of my graduate training. Right. It was a 
um, a, a program in comparative world history, it ended up being called. It started out as expansion of Europe and became comparative world history. Um, so um, I could say um, that uh, I still moved very incrementally. You know, I did a dissertation on one small territory, Dahomey in West Africa. I worked on the colonial period, but I peaked a little bit into the uh, pre-colonial era, back to the 1880s and so forth. I actually crossed the boundaries from English to French language. Dangerous, yeah. These sorts of steps um, were uh, things that allowed one to just keep expanding. Um, and then to leap to the end of that, I found in um, once I was at Pitt in after 2010 and 11, um, an opportunity to work in history of science. And I, I realized that the field of world history pays, in general, almost no attention at all to history of science. World historians pay a lot, are interested in technology, but uh, maybe because they think science is elitist and they don't want to be elitist, they really <laughs> have nothing to say about it. And um, so I have put a lot recently in trying to connect the development of knowledge at all its different levels with the other parts of world history. And that's just one more sort of increment in the, the way I've gone about trying to expand a, a global look at history. That's interesting what you were saying about, you know, your, you, your dissertation was about this one particular region in Africa, but you started peeking across these boundaries. You know, we call this podcast History Against the Grain, and it seems like, or let me ask it this way, do you feel like that you had to throughout your career kind of cut against the grain a lot, um, where the field was telling you this is what you should do and this is how you should think, and you didn't seem to, maybe weren't satisfied with, with what you were hearing from from the field and those around you? Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I trained myself as an economic historian. The idea was to apply the new economic history as it was being developed to Africa. But of course, getting an audience for that took forever. Right. Um, I started doing demographic work, so I spent lots of years, and I'm not finished with the project, to try to understand the uh, migration of Africans in, in slavery and freedom all over the, the mm -hmm. world. And found ch opportunity to work with Africanists, with uh, demographers. That was, that was great, so I got di good disciplinary training. But couldn't get grants. Right. Um, so, yeah, but... You know, every academic, whatever field or subfield you get into, you're going to get into this, at least amongst historians, this feeling of isolation and yes. so forth. It's, it's, it's not in any way unique to world history. Right. That's well said. Um, one thing you said when we, we talked recently, um, and this goes back to your graduate school training, is that as you entered this field of, of you know, or entered this path towards p becoming an Africanist and, and, you know, really began to focus on, on African history, you found yourself frequently having to encounter and then reject a bunch of the racist assumptions that were still built in the field. I mean, it was still then, and I would say probably still now to a, to a certain extent, uh, built in the field. Can you just talk about that that process because it's so relevant to well, the way we, you know, historians and, and teachers are are trying to, um, you know, think about their teaching and their writing uh, today. It's it's an ongoing project, in other words, I guess. Yeah, I wish I had more specific examples of it, but I, I just have that memory of being in the Memorial Library at the University of Wisconsin, a wonderful collection in African history and reading through all the things they gave us to 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 read and then finding 
example after example where this African leader or this group of African people had done, you know, made some innovation, some accomplishment, uh, made some connection amongst themselves and other people in the next group, and myself being surprised. Yeah. And then realizing that there was no reason for me to be surprised that Africans were doing the same sort of things that people would do in other places, even though they hadn't got instructions from outside. Right. You know, and it just, um, and I, I was, I was embarrassed. I, I mean, I still am embarrassed when I come up against those uh, things, and I still come up against them. Um, but um, it's 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 a reminder that the the way in which um, discourse is set up on this planet, uh, there's this hierarchy, and it's expected that uh, certain elites are have all of the. Uh, um, keys to big innovations and so forth, and it's a big surprise if anybody outside those groups uh, does that. And you, my feeling was, you just get used to those things. You, when you find it, you you try to pin it down and take a more, you know, an approach that gives you the protagonist that you're working with some credit, um, and and go on with it. But uh, uh, just uh, it it's uh, it's not possible to train yourself to. Uh, you know, you have somebody like Donald Trump saying he doesn't have a racist bone yeah. in his body, this sort yeah. of stuff. It's just, uh, it's, it's every place. You know, I mean, certainly people in and of Africa have to deal with the same thing as people from outside who, right. are, who are studying the continent. I mean, they have to encounter those same assumptions. They need to get rid of them. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Built into the, everything of their in, in formal instruction and un, unfortunately even into the instruction that they get at home. Yeah, I mean, in, in entire fields, you, you know, think about anthropology as a field that's almost built upon, you know, studying people in the colonies, um, you know, so, you know, it's not just the specific knowledge within the field, but the, the, the assumptions w of the field itself are sometimes so grounded in, in a bunch of uh, racial assumptions and hier hierarchical assumptions about, about humanity. And, and I think, you know, part of the world history is not immune to this by any means. Um, it absolutely can you know, reify those those distinctions and, and those those differences and those those assumptions. But there is, you know, a, an extent to which if you can look at the world more broadly, um, then you stop seeing the world as just a collection of separate and independent peoples uh, who are doing different things and following different paths. And you can start seeing you can start seeing the world as uh, a place where a species called Homo sapiens lives. And you can start looking at that history in a more um, holistic way that, that pays less attention to those those distinctions uh, that we would now call racial racial distinctions. And this, you know, gets me to to your book. Uh, the book is titled The History of Humanity, The Evolution of the Human System uh, came out in 2020. And I will highly recommend it to all our listeners. And so I just want to say about the book that it, it's first of all, not a very large book in terms of the number of pages, uh, but it really is a massive tome a life's work in terms of the scale and the scope of the types of questions you're asking, the kind of answers you're providing. Um, in your own words, the book, quote, proposes the task of explaining the evolution of human society and the human system. So you, you set for yourself just a small task there, the evolution of human society and the human system. And I'm going to turn this over to Chris in a second, but I just want to uh, throw in another, another quote that really gets at the scale of the book. You say, world history is not, a sim is not simply a story. It is a set of puzzles for which the solutions require the very best in our theoretical analysis and empirical data collection 
in all the disciplines of knowledge that address aspects of the human experience. So let's dive into this book, which is so rich, and we're going to try to just uh, you know focus on a few major ideas and themes throughout the book because we could get lost in all the the uh, you know specifics of, of a thing. But um, we're, we're going to try to hit on as much as we can in the time we have allotted. Yeah, I want to second that, Josh. Um, this is a marvelous book, uh, in part because of its relative brevity. Uh, you know, there must be some inverse rule about the bigger the, the subject, the harder it is to write a shorter book about it. But uh, it's very readable and I think presents an extraordinary um, array of, uh, you know, of knowledge from across the disciplines. You know, uh, you mentioned getting siloed, you know, in your specialty. Well, that wasn't a problem here for you, Pat, because you were clearly reading not just beyond your own field of history, but in uh, the work of, of uh, many other disciplines. And you, you acknowledge at the beginning that to, uh, you know, to take on this kind of narrative challenge uh, at this point, we, we have to cross those sorts of boundaries. So, uh, all right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'll try to, to restrain <laughs> myself here with uh, the questions because I, I find myself browsing contentedly in your end notes, you know, looking, I, I, I want to know where you got this information, you know, and I want to, I want to order these books and, and read these studies. So I'm going to try to contain myself here in, in my enthusiasm for what you've done. But um, you say rather, uh, you know, uh, modestly at the very beginning, you say, or at the beginning of chapter four, my narrative now extends to the expansion of the human system uh, from 65,000 years ago to 1,000 years ago. And uh, as if that, uh, you know, were as, as easily done or as naturally done as, as anything might be, you say you're aiming for a comprehensive narrative of human expansion. So, uh, you know, what's not to like here? But I guess, you know, Josh and I have been uh, talking a bit in recent uh, broadcasts as we seek to, you know, offer for teachers especially, but, but, but the, you know, the general audience as well, you know, some conceptual tools for understanding the deeper past, uh, the human, deeper human past at least. And uh, how would you, if you were to give that elevator speech, you know, with someone writing up and you only had that amount of time, how would you try to impress upon them the relevance and vitality, you know, of where we stand now in relation to our own more distant human past? Why, why does that matter for us now? Right. So how, how to um, link the present to the past? Um, I, um, I, do, I do want to, to say that I spent uh, 10 years tinkering with a textbook for world history. I had avoided uh, uh, doing such a thing as I thought people weren't ready for them and then I started on it anyhow and then I found in 2014 it was just this long narrative and that what I wanted to do was something maybe shorter but that it was definitely an argument and that the argument was how to link humanity, human society, to the natural world. Uh, and so that's the objective that I set. Um, and then as to the shorter answers uh, to the question that you've posed, Chris, on 
links between the present and the past that are that show the relevance of the past to the present I've put it into uh, four different categories one is that of the natural world uh, and then I, I labeled natural world as as Gaia the Greek goddess of uh, of the earth um, I won't try to go into the detail there but the point is that the natural system of the world keeps the temperature at the earth within um, a, a range of 10 degrees centigrade plus or minus and, and that has done that so for billions of years and that provides an atmosphere in which in which life can can grow uh, so we're wh whoever we are we're interacting with that system and then biological evolution developed at a certain point and the interesting thing about humans is that the early times of Australopithecus and um, and uh, initial stone tools and this sort of stuff that was though and and bipedal existence um, all those things that made humans really distinctive from other animals that took place simply with uh, um, biological evolution um, and then the third piece that I had to learn about in the midst of all uh, my studies is the study of cultural evolution so this is a new subfield that's emerged since 1980 that emphasize it relies on an insight that the mm, your gen, your genes are passed on your genes are passed on to your children and to all of their siblings and so that there's a broader sort of interconnection uh, of uh, who's related to whom that has enabled uh, those who could take advantage of it to build up patterns of of cooperation. So there's a, a period that is the period of Homo erectus and of Neanderthals and Denisovans and the early human uh, Homo sapiens where patterns of uh, collaboration are developing amongst humans in ways that in uh, were uh, reinforcing the expansion of brains uh, one other thing is where the difference in size between males and females becomes smaller that is to say the relative height of females grows uh, there are a whole bunch of I interesting developments in the capabilities of humans that are taking place from this mechanism that is different from old-fashioned genetic biology and then finally and the one where I really emphasize things most that is that as I argue at a certain point speech emerged that rather than it gradually slowly developing to speak in the syntactic language that we use now um, required the um, assembly of large groups that would work together and because you speak you know you have to speak to other people um, and that that existence of a, a group behavior and being able to explicitly exchange your views with one another as well as your information was something that began at a certain point and I've timed it at 70,000 years ago um, so um, for uh, the notion of human na nature for instance the human nature that we can talk about nowadays would be would have been different for humans in each of those situations for the humans in the various earliest times uh, to the point where they're developing their cooperation to the earlier days of when they're speaking together uh, that 
there are, on the one hand, ties in the, so that the physical and really um, verbal um, characteristics of humans 70,000 years ago and today are, are uh, of only tiny differences. Um, and a lot of the behavior that we carry out, and that's especially f behavior within households and families, is very much the same, is modeled on those early times. So that's the framework that I set up, and then I try to trace each of those four elements, so environment, biology, uh, cultural evolution, and social evolution, uh, from way back uh, up to the present. And I've, you know, I've come up with a bunch of insights that were new to me and that I think are really helpful in doing that. Yeah, I would, I would say, uh, yeah, with regard to, to the insights, I mean, what, what you find reading through the book is, you know, a fairly uh, straightforward account uh, of these categories that you discuss. In other words, it's it, once you establish them in the early chapters, uh, the, the narrative sort of leads the reader through these, you know, various, um, you know, historical uh, developments of them. Uh, but but along the way, you know, almost uh, inconspic inconspicuously, as it were, you know, there are these insights that you drop, you know, regarding, say, you know, for example, man's relationship, you know, with the with the environment. So, uh, you know, af after the end of the, the what I would usually refer to as the last ice age, you know, and in, in the, in the beginning now of different, you know, forms of um, you know, uh, will will eventually become agriculture. Uh, how, from that moment, uh, the activities of man uh, have a discernible effect on global climate. Let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, so we think of you know climate change and you know in the industrial age, uh, the greenhouse gases, et cetera. That there's actually quite an extended history of of you know man's sort of. Um, uh, you know, changing that that kind of climate balance, if you will, and where things like temperatures are concerned, you know, global temperatures. Uh, and I really appreciate that because, you know, what it reminds us of that th these things have their own history. You know, in other words, these things aren't uh, simply, uh, you know, taken as as a given. They they there's a relationship, in other words, uh, be it, you know, ecological or what have you. And so, uh, it reminds me, you know, even as we think about the more distant human past, that it has never been simply a, a, a given, you know, as say taking, you know, an account, a biblical account or something, you know, would have it, you know, a, a sort of straightforward, this is nature and here's man and man, you know, uh, it, you know, takes advantage of nature or something, that there's a relationship there and that relationship itself has been constantly uh, changing and evolving. And as we change the environment, the environmental changes work on us, et cetera. And I find that enormously useful for understanding our own predicament, I guess is what I'm saying, Pat, here in the 21st century. One of the problems with the way world history has been constructed as, as, as civilizational history is it says that the really relevant times go back yeah, a few thousand years, and then after, before that, it's just background. Mm -hmm. um, but uh you can you can find uh, more of the interactive the truly interactive part if you if you look for it and and so just to pick up on the environmental example that you gave the the time from about uh, 
seven to five or four thousand years ago was the time when agriculture was expanding so rapidly that um, the amount of uh, uh, forest that was cut down was really sharply increased. But the the level of vegetation under human control was uh, was uh, was greater. Uh, this ge- geologist, uh, William Redderman, went m- did calculations to make a convincing case that those those things increased the amount of greenhouse gases and began warming the earth at a time when it would otherwise have cooled, so that the expansion of agriculture really improved the situation for humans and enabled the agriculture to example uh, to advance more. But is there a way to talk about similar things uh, before the glacial maximum? And um, and I think there there is, which is this time period when humans are expanding from Africa all over uh, tropical Asia and temperate Asia and in, into the Americas, were times in which people settled in each area, but they had to accommodate to each niche, each place in which they lived. They had to they get used to the local you know minerals and vegetation and and figure out what they could hunt and uh, figure out how to control water and so forth. So there are all these micro-level transformations in um, um, parts of the earth that come because of the intervention of humans in place after place. Um, so and there's a nice field of study about uh, human niche occupation that is developing study, uh, you know, more investigation of those issues. But it's it. I like it because it's a a reason for thinking that the activities of humans uh, in those times were not simply surviving, but they were transforming the world in ways that was going to lay the groundwork for the next transformation. I want to go back to something you said um, when you were talking right at the beginning. You were talking about you were attempting to write a textbook, and I I thought what you said was very profound. You said you you realized you were writing a narrative and you wanted to write an argument, Um, and I, I think because. A lot of people think of the narrative as as the argument, or, or rather, rather I guess what I'll say is that um, I, people think of the narrative as just, you know, this is the story that that explains the past. The narrative is often making an argument, although it's not saying it is. What your book did, though, is it tells a narrative um, mm-hmm. that also has very clear, uh, very well, uh, you know, uh, founded sets of arguments, at least plausible arguments. There are times when you say you're, you you say this only tentatively. You can't say this for sure. There's times when you actually ask questions and you say, "I don't have the answer yet," um, which I which I actually appreciated. Um, and one of the big arguments you make in the book is about is about language. You mentioned language a bit ago. Um, you set up language as, as sort of a, a pivot point in this history, um, a moment where we really do start seeing more rapid change amongst uh, humanity. So, can you just talk a little bit about about the importance of language to human society, to Homo sapiens, I guess specifically? Sure. So, language linguistics is is a is a difficult field. There are fundamental controversies that are not resolved in it, and as a result, it's simply left out. So uh, we have all of the information we have from archaeology and uh, geology and so forth on early human history. There is no organized campaign to use um, language evidence to make what we can of, of, of the past. Um, there, and there were a few people, and I had the good fortune to be associated uh, closely and personally with, with some of them. Uh, so Chris Arrett and, 
and uh, Joseph Greenberg is an er of an earlier generation who've um, opened up a bunch of, of new ideas. But I, I just, mm. I'm not a linguist, but I know that, wha uh, that if you look at the distribution of languages and the sub-distribution of languages, you can trace migrations of people and 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 if you go to the linguists and their links amongst words you can trace cultural flows amongst groups in doing this so there's an immense amount of information uh, to be um, drawn from from language for the whole period in which people have spoken linguists tend generally to say well that that information is valuable only about um, 10,000 years back <laughs> and here am I trying to make projections about language information back to 70,000 years but the languages of Australia and, uh, and New Guinea are the languages of the people who initially settled there mm -hmm. 50, 60,000 years yeah. ago you know? and so th there, are, there are places where one language has wiped out another and so forth but there are also places where early languages have survived so for instance the settlement of the Americas those initial languages are there. They almost got wiped out, but we know enough about them to, to be able to trace migrations all over the American continent. So that's migration as a way of tracing, or language as a way of tracing history and tracing culture. Um, but uh, um, and we have no observations on the early days of language. We, you know, we just simply don't have observations on that unless we come up with some really imaginative new techniques we're not going to have. So what I've tried to do is make a hypothesis of the, uh, it's this argument that language was developed uh, in a campaign by a bunch of uh, energetic hmm. teenagers who ran away from home and uh, formed a group large enough that out they could make a game out of words and they uh, stuck with it, and the and the game and the words ga grew, and uh, that uh, ultimately uh, became uh, a the basis for uh, a society that's organized on a level that's much bigger than that of the households mm -hmm. from which they came. All right, so households of I've said twenty people, you know, the numbers vary a lot, but language groups end up being. Uh, about 150 people. There, that's a number that's been um, researched, actually, by uh, Robin Dunbar, um, an English um, anthropologist who, uh, anthropologist and biologist, who studied all different sorts of hominid of hominids, uh, to, or uh, I should say, primates, to see how big the groups are compared to how big the brain is. Um, but in any case, the, the point I'm making is that the step to language, to spoken language, is um, one that takes place at the same time as and because of the creation of groups of people who agree to be in the same group. How do you know that people agreed to be in a language group? The way you can tell is that they spend the two or three or more years that it takes to learn the language. If that isn't a... Uh, struggle for an admission to a group <laughs> I don't know what is um, so um, that um, the existence of language if you you know if you've got whatever it is 60 80 young people who are going off and developing languages and so forth and then they go back home it changes life at home they begin teaching the children the language that they have the household at a certain point 
adopts the you know once enough years have passed then even the parents are can can speak the languages and then the teaching of language moves from this game site of of uh, teenagers to something that's taken that takes mm-hmm. place at infancy and led by parents so the household changes and the uh, as, as social evolution expands its terrain and gets into the areas where cultural evolution used to control and then you can think of the people who are you know speaking these languages and and uh, or one language to begin with and the representation that they have of um, all different sorts of ideas questions they have they get to name things right so everybody knew that they were related to one another but mm-hmm. now they can give names to the individuals and the groups that weren't there before and they could start asking new questions and among the questions is the question of human nature you know are we now that we're doing this are we different mm-hmm. from other animals uh, and so that question uh, and other philosophical questions would have come up right away in the in those early days so the, so that the development of language in this view is rather than a slow and incremental adding a word at a time it's a burst of of excitement and research and developing uh, philosophy and uh, and labeling things and extending the size of your memory to cover all the words you now need to put in um, so then I have to come up with ways of testing, you know, to see whether the things that we know are consistent with that view of the development mm-hmm. of language or not. Uh, so that's, there's much to be done on that. It, it's so profound in, in so many ways. I mean, just I think starting with the fact, you know, I think p- people generally are aware now that, that Homo sapiens emerged in one place and spread, spread there, that we're all related to each other. But it, it takes even further the idea that there is this original language community and that all languages, therefore, uh, come from that first language community, it is one of those. I, I would say this is the first time in the book that my my jaw dropped, at least metaphorically. I can't tell if it was literally or not, but it was a, it was it was one of those moments. And and the idea that, as you just expressed, that it had to be relatively young people who came up with the language because of what we know about language acquisition um, in the right. contemporary world. It's not going to be adults who come up with this. It has to be people of a certain right. uh, point in their in the maturity. Um, also, are, who's best at games? Yeah, that's a, a great point as well. So it's 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 profound. Uh, it's the kind of profound idea that that you know throughout the book you have stuff like this. But this this seems to be the the moment. And then the and then the the, the question that that comes next is how do we go from these communities of 150 you know uh, people sharing a language to at a certain point you know as, as you as you pointed out to me the other day. At some point, there had to be a language community that had a, a million speakers in it. Um, and so, mm. you know, it's one thing to understand this at, at the small scale, and it's really important to understand at the small scale. But another part of your project is understanding, and, and I guess this goes back to Chris's initial question about what the deep past has to tell us about right. the more recent past, is that at some point, we're not just talking about the origin, origins of these things, but, but how they develop, how they grow, how they spread. Um, do you have any indication? Do you have any idea of, of how we get from small language communities to these massive language communities that exist across the world today? Um, no, I, I, I have little bits, bits and pieces. I haven't discovered a discourse about it. Right. Um, there are, uh, uh, let's see, what's the, the word Beecroft came up with? 
there's uh, in any case there were uh, certain literate communities okay so Sanskrit language and Greek language became to be uh, once they were written and spread around the la the written language uh, spread much further than the actual native speaking community mm -hmm. right yeah. uh, and and so there's that's one way in which language spread beyond uh, other areas if you think of um, the uh, Han Empire or the Roman Empire you know there were administrators from the center who who wrote things and used um, um, their the Latin or um, whatever Mandarin would have been in those days to administer large areas but you also know that the Roman Empire was divided into Roman and the Greek parts of it plus uh, the other parts beyond that um, and you know that the clever thing about Chinese language is that the uh, written script can be used for uh, languages that are um, grammatically and, and um, in vocabulary ways quite different from mm -hmm. one another right. So, um, you know, you go up to the 19th century and the spread of public schools, as which were set about unifying languages. So, I mean, there was, big, you know, Spanish. The the monarchy tried in the whatever in the time of Cervantes to to uh, um, unify the language at least at the court level. But is that at the village level? I don't know. Right. You know, the these um, um, these. There are the uh, you can make arguments that would say we've had really small language communities that existed until very recently. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, there are also you know look at the way in which English spread around North America. I mean there are different dialects, but they're all pretty much mutually comprehensible. How how did they do that? Um, and so you know to get when when were when was there a language? that a million people spoke, um, you could, um, you know, could you go back uh, to uh, the, the time of uh, the Babylonians and, and uh, their successors? Uh, you, you couldn't go much further than that. Or could, would there, could we say that Bantu languages were close enough that in the times three, 4,000 years ago when they were spreading through, Africa that that the, these rural areas people were pretty much able to speak to one another throughout um, it's uh, we haven't I mean for so far it's just asking it as a if because of sort of toying with the question but that mm -hmm. there may be more substantial reasons and there may be some evidence to uh, come up with this question but the most basic point is that the, our inability to come up with an answer to this <laughs> question shows how little language has been thought of in historical terms. Yes. And yeah, and I, I would love to throw in here because, you know, I'm, about, I'm, I'm bursting at the seams. I, like Josh, I was, you know, taken with your, your discussion all the way through the Book of Language. And, and because you frame this um, story, Pat, in, in evolutionary terms, you, know, you almost can't help but think of these things, you know, in, in that evolutionary frame. So something like language, you know, that it provides some utility toward the propagation of a certain society, let's say, or certain institutions. And and you talk at the moment, this one of these pivot points, right, in, in the uh, early Iron Age. So after 
about the year 1000 BCE where you get this this extraordinary innovation right in in alphabetic language yeah you know that makes the you know the the writing of 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 spoken languages and the reading of it and, and it sim- dramatically simplifies and adds to its utility and it, and it seems to be coming at a time when you know, uh, in, you know economic uh, connections are increasing and you know, longer range uh, you know exchanges are happening so you can see you know you almost want to say at that point that as the phoenicians are colonizing the mediterranean they needed uh, a more portable you know language i mean uh, something that could that could mix and match you know with different uh, needs uh, more versatile i guess is what i'm trying to say but then you know you have the example and and it's one of these these cases in your narrative you know where you you drop a a little bomb you know and you say but in china you know the language the written script doesn't doesn't change right you yes. i mean it, they, they don't go down to 25 phonetic characters nope. you know dramatically make you know more difficult the learning the acquisition i would think as we've always heard you know of that script why do you suppose that is i mean do you have any uh, any thoughts on that why you don't get a more versatile you know more uh, uh you said chinese script is is adaptable in other ways but it still strikes me as a boondoggle almost you know um i had a um undergraduate uh, student uh, who was re- very serious in uh, Chinese language and did spent two years working with me and wrote an a, 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 uh, honors thesis on uh, languages, on all the different scripts of the world. And uh, he, he explored these things. We submitted it for the department prize, but they said something that's 200 pages long can't be considered. <laughs> uh, and I, I wanted to, I wanted it uh, I, I think it's well, you know with a little editing is worthy of publication. Um, that Chinese language wa- it went through all kinds of edits and modifications and font changes and so forth. So it was always being upgraded, uh, and and continues with these 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 upgrades. Uh, but it's it's it tells you that back at the time of the. Um, uh, when Aramaic and and uh, uh, Phoenician were were being developed, that there were people who held on to the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian scripts for a long time because they they worked, you know, they had systems to keep them going. And um, but the balance was just a little bit different. Um, the um, anyhow, this is a, this is just a fascinating uh, puzzle. Now nowadays, as as um, we are in uh, electronic scripts. Uh, you know, in in Chinese, people uh, use uh, use pinyin as to create their Chinese characters. Um, but there are also, you know, there may be that there are new uh, programs developed which make the um, the writing of Chinese electronically just as easy as uh, Latin scripts. Um, so wouldn't wouldn't uh, uh, count it out. Um, anyhow, it's a it's a uh, it's a, it's a great uh, imponderable. Right. One of the things you you've mentioned uh, a few times we've you, we've kind of touched on the idea of human nature um, and human nature. I think most people when they hear that they think of something that is inherent and unchanging. Right. It's it's built into us as a species. 
But you drop this this uh, statement early in the book. You say, human nature, though deeply embedded, has changed with time. So human nature as a thing is something that's also subject to, to change. It's it's a it's a huge statement to make, and it has huge implications on on how we think of of humanity and how we think about about history. So let's talk a little bit about about what you mean by by human nature in this, in this sense, um, and how can something that is part of our nature uh, be subject to change? I guess is, is is the question. Right. So in our neoliberal times, <laughs> the defenders of the neoliberal order. Uh, have a human nature argument, right? They yes. say that uh, profit making is the uh, um, the real core of human existence, and so you should not do anything to get in the way of profit making. Um, and um, they have arguably uh, done a lot to implement their view of things by getting rid of a lot of. Um, um, regulations, right? And then they convince uh, a bright young uh, undergraduate, men especially, that they can go uh, make a great fortune by becoming a, a bond trader, uh, sort of stuff. And then, then that actually becomes the word, right? And they become rapacious, uh, uh, greedy uh, guys, and uh, um, there we are. So that's that's not a that's, it's not progress in human nature, but it's change in human nature, right? And it's it's carried out by an ideological campaign, um, but to argue at a at a longer distance, um, um, the you know fortunately there's a lot of nice research going on uh, with uh, what I see as two main perspectives. There's a perspective of the biologists who are making sure to compare humans to animals and get away from this question about this human nature and the emotions that underlie, underlie them, whether that is a, is a separate human story, uh, that, uh, you know, they, anyhow, the comparisons among human and, and, and humans and animals are growing rapidly and they're, and they're coming up with a lot of great results that smooth over the difference between us all. Uh, so that's the idea that emotions are some kind of a... Um, uh, biological state that is uh, you know a certain collection of chemicals working away there that respond to certain external stimuli the things that make you fearful or comforted or this sort of thing um, and that the things that we call feelings are um, kind of reports on what your emotional state is and it may be because humans have bigger brains and more thinking going on. We have a more complex set of emotions than uh, rabbits and cats, um, but that there's a real strong analogy between them. That's the uh, biological part of it. And then the other part of it is the social part of it. And um, uh, Lisa Feldman uh, Barrett, who's at, uh, she's still at Northeastern, Josh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, is a uh, prof of, of biology there has done a lot by think by ar arguing about emotions being constructed, mm. right? Then and that in the interactions between children and parents or children and those around them, that they in 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 acting and in learning to speak, 
the uh, the idea of what uh, uh, the different emotions are is is transferred back and forth and then created in the mind of each each kid. So uh, the uh, the idea of constructed emotions versus the idea of genetically inherited emotions those two are intention. So and so we can go from there in 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 further directions. Um, the um, the way I tried to set it up in the book is to say different circumstances uh, in terms of which type of evolution people are living under are going to change the nature of uh, people's emotional responses. Mm -hmm. So when we were just operating under biological evolution versus the times when humans were on the edge of being able to speak but weren't speaking yet, okay, as opposed to the time when uh, speech begins and people are now in much larger communities you know parentheses the notion of the caveman in his community of right. uh, a small family is just not representative of what it took for people to speak they had it doesn't mean that everybody lived in a big village but somehow people were in contact with a lot of other people because they needed to exchange information in order to keep the language going and they mm -hmm. got so much benefit from the from the language so we have to think about people's living patterns in early days but in any case interactions amongst people and the, and the ideas that they're creating and so forth is going to develop different emotional states in, in people right um, and and then as I've tried to argue each institution that's created uh, has its own dynamic uh, and the way to start this discussion is with language as an institution. It's an institution because it's created by people who hold it together. They believe in it. They act in it. And then it has certain ways of being. So language changes. Why does it change? Because change is because the next generation wants to pronounce things differently or likes different words or, you know, also because there are new discoveries. But you can't stop language from changing. No one's in charge of language. There's no king of language, <laughs> right? So it runs in a very autonomous way. Yeah. But there's a, and so that's a dynamic right. of, the, uh, of, of language. And then other institutions have quite different dynamics. Uh, okay, so human nature um, as human patterns of behavior depends on what institutional setup they're in, and it depends on uh, when they have lived. You know, so I'm, I'm arguing that human nature is really different from that 70,000 years ago, um, even though physically we're the same, uh, because the circumstances uh, that people live in are so different. Hey, you know, I like I like that a lot, Pat. You know, uh, when you said there's nobody in charge of language, I always think back to the French um, Ministry of Culture, you know, when I was uh, in, uh, had some time back uh, in the 80s, <laughs> were uh, trying to uh, legislate uh, against certain English sort of slang terms uh, making their way into the French discourse. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that was the ultimate sort of, um, you know, futility culture. You know, it's like water, right? It finds the cracks. So even if you build, you know, barriers or something, uh, it, it'll find its way in. Hey, you know, I wanted to ask you about uh, something along these lines, and it was a book uh, that I, uh, you know, was was searching for in your endnotes as I was browsing. Uh, Jeremy Black's uh, War and Its Causes, and you you borrow from from him this idea of bellicosity, 
you know, and I was so taken with it because I guess, you know, with January 6th and the Capitol insurrection fresh in my mind, something Josh and I have spent some time discussing uh, on, on the podcast, uh, this idea that, you know, everyone from, you know, Genghis Khan to the Proud Boys, I guess, on January 6th, <laughs> that there was a kind of a historical component to emotion. And in this case, to bellicosity, that is a kind of heightened, aggressive, emotional pitch. Um, uh, you know, all, all my years of teaching history and whatnot, you know, I'm not sure I'd ever quite settled in on the history of emotion, you know, as of, among other things, being part of the institutional expression of our past, uh, let alone, you know, something like, you know, the, the fulcrum on which things like war can pivot. So I, I would love for you to just maybe talk a little bit about bellicosity. Right. Um, well, I, I have an instrumental purpose in focusing on this issue. You know, I'm looking for connections between the biological and social existence of humans. And so emotions, since they are defined both at the biological and at the social level, provide some possibility on that. So um, Jer Jeremy Black's a, he's the most published historian in the world. He's a very skilled military historian and I've gotten to know him and, and um, asked his permission to, to use this uh, analysis of bellicosity that he, that he offers and, and to attach it to, he doesn't necessarily buy my institutional analysis, but um, we're not that far from one another. That the time period in the early second millennium CE uh, was a time of um, uh, you know, rapid warming and uh, uh, agricultural uh, flourishing and so forth, and therefore a great time for greed and conquest and exploration. And if you just look at the list of wars at the time of, uh, you know, to simplify it, it's the Crusades, it's, it's, uh, it's Genghis Khan, it's Mali, it's, it's also uh, the uh, Incas and the Aztecs. So there's all this war going on. And the uh, and each of the empires that's con that conquers another is soon conquered, so they don't last very long at all. So there's no, you know, progress in, in this. Uh, that, uh, but there is a um, a certain frame of mind of those in in these in these wars, whether they're initially recruited. Uh, or, or volunteered or so forth, if you're going to go out there and fight again and again, then you have to develop a bellicose outlook. You have, you're going out there risking your life in every, in every action, you know, and it is, a, it is an outlook that um, uh, influences a lot around it and, and uh, causes fear and uh, builds hierarchy and, you know, a certain sort of order comes with it in times when that's given a, a high high level of priority. Fascinating thing is that at the same time global market relations were growing. Even though you know what you do is you destroy the cities, you destroy the marketplaces, but somehow again and again uh, market would marketing would develop at this at this time. Um, so um, 
And uh, what else? Oh yeah, religion. Where does religion fit into this? Well, religion by this time, as, I, as far as I can see, rather than doing what it ought to do and what it maybe did 2,000 years ago, which is to argue for uh, peaceable ways of existence, uh, religion supported the, the war makers uh, and just chose sides amongst them. Um, so, uh, you know, I've got it as far as a, a set of issues to, to toy with. It is a reason why I take that time period from which I labeled in the, in the book from 800 to 1600 or sometimes 1000 from 1600 to say that treating that as a unit and looking at all of the crisis and conflict in that time is uh, going to be more productive in thinking about world history than drawing a sharp line at, at 1500 and mm -hmm. saying, okay, European ships mm -hmm. going around the world is the big, the big difference. That's great. One, one um, of the things we've, we've uh, covered in a lot of different ways throughout the podcast is that the, what the best kind of history does is it expands our imagination of what's possible. And what the worst kind of history does is narrows our imagination. Uh, it tells us that there's only one way to understand the past, only one way to understand the present. Um, and so, you know, I think what the best history does is it reveals how diverse the past was, how many different ways people had of living their lives, responding to uh, stimuli, responding to crisis, responding to change. And one, one really great example that I think that comes from the book is just a, a quick statement you make, um, and this relates to, to network and hierarchy, uh, these two categories that you, you, uh, you describe. You say that Africans, this, so this would be in this period from, uh, I think, up to about 1000 BCE, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that yeah, Africans, yeah, Africans had chosen small rather than large political systems and had chosen to rely more on network than on hierarchy. Um, you know, so you're saying that in terms of technology and all these other developments, they're doing the same things that uh, people are doing in the rest of Eurasia. They're, they're uh, producing iron, uh, probably at a higher level than, than other people. Uh, they have you know, all these different uh, technologies and developments, but they're not choosing hierarchy or they're not developing hierarchy. So can you talk about that, that distinction between network and hierarchy and, and what maybe that African example reveals about, about the past? Sure. Um, well, with the, with the Holocene era, with, with um, uh, agriculture and domestic animals and, and larger groups of people, uh, more things to do, the, the institutional variety grows. Right there, there's uh, we got literacy. We got people doing astronomy in projecting, you know, seasons and weather and um, these sorts of things. So there's uh, there's a lot of choices in what what structures to set up. Um, and what I w want to emphasize is that the the networks is a way of thinking about all the additional sort of horizontal con level connections that are developing in that time. Mm. So there's been a tendency to reduce social change in the period after agriculture to the steady development of hierarchy and to focus on the people who've got the most hierarchy. Right. And I, so I don't want to deny that that's going on. I mean, the ziggurats are there. They're huge. Uh, mm. The pyramids, too. Um, <laughs> But um, there's also an immense amount of development of new connections and new types of connections. And uh, they, they rely on, on one another. And, uh, and so in that sense, a, a hierarchy is just another sort of a, 
uh, of a network it's got a it's got a vertical dimension to it um, so um, there um, the uh, political structures the centralized structures of um, Mesopotamia especially uh, developed um, before anybody else I don't think it is you know there'll, there'll be nuances to that that's not going to change very much mm -hmm. the development of commerce however is uh, th there's much less difference in time so one of the things so I'm relying a lot on on the work of, of Chris Arad who's pulled together the African materials and the development as as much as 2000 years ago of or, or 2000 years BCE of in West Africa commercial networks of villages uh, not kingdoms uh, but but villages with various sorts of money uh, not not uh, shekels of copper but uh, but other sorts of money that uh, were um, Anyhow, that we're that we're developing and exchanging goods uh, at the same time, or arguably somewhat before any place else, and so one of the things that develops over the next couple millennia is that the West African and the Mediterranean and the Middle East uh, commercial centers um, yeah, interact with one another, and goods began going going further and so forth. So there was an opportunity in this for people in Africa to nonetheless do a better job at restraining the development of hierarchies of, of kings. I mean, so there certainly were leaders, mm. uh, but the, as, as opposed to uh, Eurasia, where monarchy really got developed. Uh, so it's a choice, and then you can look for things that influence the choice, and horses certainly come up for mm. discussion here. You know, so horses showed up uh, about 2000 BCE as uh, uh, for uh, for their use in in warfare and uh, chariot work and uh, all the work of uh, David Anthony in Central Asia and the, the initial days of the um, the uh, charioteers are pretty well developed uh, tracing the spread of horses and chariots all over Eurasia is, that work is not done how did they get to China right um, but in any case horses became were great for warfare they definitely expanded the amount of enslavement they definitely provided terrific symbols for uh, um, rule and monarchy and so forth um, and so they they and they and they also definitely got to North Africa and Ethiopia and then didn't quite have the effect there that elsewhere. Uh, so I don't want to try to blame it all on on horses, <laughs> um, but um, um, I think we're getting to the point of being able to discuss issues uh, at this at this scale of uh, interaction. Right. Um, you know, another little distinction you make that's important that even within hierarchical societies, we can differentiate between achievement-based organizations and hereditary leadership, that there's there's different ways to acquire that power. But I think, again, we often only think about that hereditary leadership, but there still were many, many achievement-based organizations or uh, leadership uh, systems around the world. And it's, again, another example of where when we only think of, of uh, large-scale societies in, in one way, it really does limit the way we can also think about, you know, options for ourselves. I think in contemporary United States, we probably think we live in an achievement-based uh, society, but we're 
probably more of a hereditary leadership society in, in reality. Um, so these are, again, just useful ways of, of distinguishing um, different societies, different leadership types, and, and again, revealing the diversity of, of that human experience in the deep past. Um, one thing that we haven't gotten enough into yet is is really central to your whole book, and that's this idea of institutions. Uh, you define institutions as, quote, a social organization operated by people for selected purposes. Uh, and then I'm going to give, I'm going to want to quote something you say also about it, uh, institutions and innovation. You say, other major innovations, large and small, created new institutions in human experience, and the internal logic of each institution brought into play the dynamics necessary to sustain the character of activity in that new institution. For agriculture, the nature of our, the agricultural calendar arose from the needs for planting, weeding, harvesting, and storing. For ceramics, the need to control both clay and fire developed specific skills of modeling and firing that generate, generated a recurring desire for creativity in design. For migration, as we shall see, the combination of the human life cycle and the availability of different language communities both encouraged and required migration and learning among young adults. So you're setting up, you know, these institutions as, as central to, to the human system, as central to the way we uh, engage with each other, uh, central to the way we, we work in tandem with each other in cooperation, um, and it's, it's central also to this concept of, of social evolution, which is also crucial to your book. So can you talk a little bit about the significance of institutions for yeah. uh, this, this human story? Yeah, so my, my idea is that the in creation of the institution of language, held to, you know, a group of people held together for purposes of talking to one another, required yeah. immediately the creation of a parallel institution of a community, mm -hmm. which holds them together as a social group for, this, for the same purposes. And then that, that requires rapidly the development of institutions of ritual, some way of, of formalizing, symbolizing the uh, benefits of uh, the the community and the and the language and where the ritual would have a smaller number of ritual leaders uh, you know and uh, but that with passage of time um, uh, this idea of gathering people together for a particular purpose uh, gets uh, replicated again and again um, by you know it's just a group of people pull together a project. So visual art is one. All these beautiful cave drawings that are getting so much attention nowadays, these are not so much by individual geniuses as they are teams of people who are working together. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's the first string, the, the people who, who can really draw it, and, and, uh, and on the other, and there are all the other people who have to work to gather the materials and learn and hope, and maybe in the next generation they will, they will participate as well. But, or or lead uh, as well. But the an institution like that, a workshop, uh, may have an existence that's only the length of the genius who runs it. Uh, you know. But the idea is there and can be picked up and reenacted later on. Um, if you think of agriculture in terms of institutions, then you think not of simply the lone peasant farmer out there. But the fact that there, there, you need a system for preparing fields and for a whole community to decide which fields they're going to prepare, and systems for sharing the seeds and systems for um, uh, 
uh, harvesting and, and preserving goods long enough so that uh, you'll be able to consume them well after harvest. Uh, these require logic, organization, specialization, planning, cooperation, uh, and they develop a certain mindset. You know, people who are agriculturists, they get up early in the morning. Hmm. It's just part of their thing. People in other businesses don't necessarily get up so early. Um, and um, the um, so I I have tried to make a list. Uh, in the history of humanity book, I didn't. Uh, there, you have to work a little bit to come up with the full list of the institutions. In some cases, they're pretty well indicated in the index, but you still have to go through and look for them one by one. In my uh, history of uh, in my methods for human history, I, I made a couple uh, just uh, con condensed lists of a bunch of institutions. Um, but um, so uh, literacy, uh, religion, and so here when I think of religion as an institution, I think of the people who run the religion, mm -hmm. not just the ideas of it. Right. Okay. So coming uh, to institutions as groups of people and that and they have common sets of rules and um, but they're you know there's the people who run the show and then there's the people who just do the work and on the other hand they all play a role in it uh, then uh, especially in terms of leadership you your, your leadership dies out after a generation mm -hmm. and so you have to replace them so you need a system for storing the information on how an institution runs and for passing it on to the next generation. Right. That is to say, you need a, each institution needs an archive. Um, so nowadays we have libraries as dictionaries as, uh, and, and dictionaries as uh, archives for, for language. Other, in earlier times, before we had literacy, the archives had to be shared somehow amongst people. But, you know, people can be really good at memorization if they need to be. Um, and, um, but there's also periodic critique of how the institution works. Who is it good for? Who is the institution for? Um, so this is where the current debate on police and police institutions is really relevant. Right. You know, a police force is a group set up to provide security for a community uh, it's got its police force members that those are the those are the institution those are the people who are in it and on the other hand a police force is an institution that's governed by another institution whatever is the state or the city that controls it so you can have hierarchies of institutions um, and then then there's the question of who are the beneficiaries of each institution yeah so beneficiaries is not the nicest ter term, uh, but there's you know those who those who, I mean it's got its insurance angle to it. It, it, might, it might be all right, uh, but you um, you know for agriculture who are the beneficiaries? Well, they're the people who get the immediate crops, but it's it's maybe the society as a whole. Right. Um, but with police forces, you run rapidly into the arguments about who are the beneficiaries. You know, what parts of the community are actually uh, preserved and which are not. And then also whether the question of whether the self-interest of the people who are the head of the police union uh, is not undermining the operation of the police system as a whole. 
mm-hmm. or undermining the group that is supposed to be overseeing them and, and, and putting them to, to work at protecting the society. So these are debates about social priorities. And so my I'm trying to introduce the argument that as long as institutions have existed, there have been debates about their social priorities. Is the institution working best to provide social welfare for whom? Or who is it for and who is it not for? So um, the general critique of big corporations now who present themselves as working in the public interest, and on the other hand, the public has nothing to say about the decisions that are made mm-hmm. by the corporation. So there's, there's, a, there's room for argument about that. And those arguments sometimes become, you know, really um, sharp and and decisive, and uh, and institutions get uh, um, eliminated, right? So there are calls for eliminations of police forces right. right now. This is this is not ex- not out of the ordinary, really. Uh, or before that, there's there's attempts to um, eliminate trade unions altogether, right? That em- mm. employers should have full control over their workforce and right. employers employees should have no say in the work that they're doing. Um, the um, debate in the last year about um, medical professionals and the recognition that they've gained for the work that they do, and on the other hand, they also the recognition that they, they, they do not control their working conditions. Mm and suggesting that maybe they should has come up. So I, I, I'm hoping to create space for more discussion of institutions and institutional functioning. And I, think, I just think if people became better at describing the functioning of institutions or, and misfunctioning of institutions, that a lot of the just anger that goes back and forth could be mm, exercised a little more productively. Yeah, you you talk about institutions. You know, there's a there's an evolutionary aspect to to what you're talking about, right? That they they have to you know you you ask this question, sui bono, who's who is who are they good for, right? And institutions ultimately have to make the case that they're good for large enough groups of people, right? That it's yeah. that people will be willing to continue to allow them to to um, to survive and and reproduce essentially, um, and and you know based on that kind of evolutionary idea. Because institutions have to reproduce themselves, uh, they exist across generations. Um, what that means, they have to s- figure out ways of, you know, like we see in, in biological evolution, they've got to pass down structures and ideas and aims and philosophies and benefits. But what that means is that when you talk about an institution that exists in the world today, and we can talk about, you know, you mentioned policing, so we could continue using that as our example. Policing has a history, right? It has, it has an origin point. Um, now, mm-hmm. You could make the case, and I, I would make the case, that that origin of policing continues to be very present in the institution of policing today. But I would also say that, that police uh, don't present themselves in the same way that they used to. Uh, and so this, you know, this brings up this, this distinction between biological evolution and then this kind of social evolution or institutional evolution. Uh, Chris made this point, I'm gonna steal this from Chris the other day, is that you know, in biological evolution, humans have this appendix that is a vestigial organ it doesn't do us any good, but there's no ideologues out there trying to argue for, for the appendix, right? They're not making the case that no, we must keep the appendix. You should never have your appendix removed. Um, but there are lots of people who are who are trying to make the case and and argue for, and 
and, and, and uh, you know, support the idea of policing as a necessary institution in our society. So is, is there a point in which, you know, I, I guess based on, on your, uh, uh, your study of, of institutions, is there a point in which these institutions just have so much dead weight that they simply cannot survive in, in the world? Or, or do you find that some institutions are so good at, at uh, you know, ideology, I guess, that they just seem to be able to, to pass themselves on forever, even as their, their original purpose is not, is not being served? I realize there's a very big uh, example at hand. Yeah. Empire is an institution mm. that has been repudiated. Mm. We still have big powers. Yes. Uh, but empires are pretty much gone. It's remarkable. Mm. You know, they, were, they expanded so much. They were so powerful. They also slaughtered so many people. Right. Um, so, it, and yet it was, uh, you know, it wasn't done as the destruction of empire was done as stories about ind independence of individual nations and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but uh, but there's there's one. I mean, the transformation bet of between I empire and nations as the dominant political structures on our planet is um, re really worthy of, of more story, more study. Um, so um, let's see: public versus private schools. Do they both get to exist? You know whether and here here. Uh, a way of rephrasing your question a little bit is: Is it the is it the institution that we're talking about eliminating, or the uh, the purpose of the institution? Mm, yeah. Okay. And the so in the case of empire, you know, the purpose of the institution was rejected. Right. Um, and um, and so and and then empires are pretty much gone. Um, so um, you know, I mean, I, I don't. I think we're mostly just going to have to say this is a really great question and look for more, <laughs> more answers. Individual institutions go up and down. So I, in my list of uh, of institutions, you know, I came up with restaurants as one possible yeah. way. And so individual restaurants come and go a whole bunch, uh, and uh, it's it's um, you know it's a doggy dog world out there. Guess that's okay. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Um, that's um. now that that makes a lot of sense. Now, I mean, going back to the the empire example is a really great one. Although you know, there's examples also where, you know, obviously we live in it when in this country that has this imperial past, right? That we don't just exist from sea to shining sea uh, as a matter of nature. This was an imperial project that you know spread from from uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, you could make the case that what's happened is that we've ideologically shifted the way we think about ourselves. Uh, I mean, I guess China, maybe China is the better example, actually. You know, China uh, has that imperial past, but now China as a place exists as a nation. Um, but it's, it's, it still has that imperial... There's oh, still, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's in, it's in, in this framework, it's, it's trying to do things that... It shouldn't be trying to do in this time <laughs> mm -hmm. and place, and 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 in and in fact, I think that's right. They shouldn't be trying to do it, but they're big enough and they have the power to try it. So we'll right. see uh, which way 
it turns things. But the when you start playing these games, they're they're just a lot of fun in ways. So America was for sure an empire from the very beginning. Yes. You know, if you just think of the Western territories and the expansion of that, and it declared itself as an empire. Uh, and now, re- and but now, but now chooses to emphasize its its revolutionary uh, decolonization history rather than its uh, a, a newborn empire history. Right. Yep. And in China as as well, they you know they were the great empire, but on the other hand, they can also emphasize the the unequal treaties and the misery of a of a century before yes. they were able to reestablish their independence. And there, you know, there's truth in both those stories. Um, and um, it's um, the the nature of our political discourse doesn't really catch up with the the realities in those stories. Um, right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so um, oh well. So let me just mention. I spent a lot of time in the book in drawing maps of empires. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, you know, interested readers, I would just encourage them to look at the maps of the of the empires, and then and then the chart back at the beginning of uh, of early empires, and you can see the ways in which they grew. You can see how rapidly they replaced one another. You can see that European empires, except for the Americas, really didn't count for anything until the mid 19th century. Right. And then and then and then. And that that makes me very confident in my categorization of capitalist empires, empires created by expanding mostly European powers from about 1850 up until they get taken apart after the Second World War. Um, and then I put a little effort into decolonization and to trying to show the space of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and so that last map in the book uh, reveals in part the reemergence of indigenous peoples and the and the the rights that they're beginning to uh, reclaim. Right. Yeah, I, w- I will second that. The, the maps are really um, really helpful, and that's a great example of these visual. Uh, you know, there these obviously these visual things, but really do tell a story. Um, you could literally just flip through the the maps on empire, and you would get a big yeah. part of the story of empires um, up until up until the modern age. So, extremely helpful. You can also make. You can also make assignments for students by asking them to find errors in the map. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no way there's any errors, right? Um, there's, oh yeah, there's errors in the map. <laughs> as we, as we there's judgment calls. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, as we finish up here, I want to add. I want to maybe end with, um, well, maybe maybe a more pessimistic idea, and then uh, and then a less pessimistic pessimistic idea. Uh, the more pessimistic is just looking around our world right now and seeing how much institutional rot there is, right? That you could make the case that a lot of the crises that we're facing are the result of the failure of institutions to do the things that they're supposed to do, right? Uh, to provide the benefits to the people they're trying, that they're supposedly uh, supposed to provide benefits for. So what do you think explains the, the, the institutional rot that is so prevalent across the world today? Well, one, I th- uh, addressing this question involves going back to look at capitalism versus socialism in the 19th, 20th century, mm-hmm. and the degree to which socialism on one hand or trade unionism on the other hand were attempts to emancipate oneself from an expanding capitalist system. Right. Um, and um, it's... Um, 
um, and really, you know, you can come up with your with your list of really horrible and ineffective and murderous uh, uh, rulers and regimes on both capitalist and socialist sides. Mm -hmm. So um, um, these are, you know, really anguished sorts of of discussions. Um, the I really believe that the period after the Second World War was a time of a remarkable uh, democratization, uh, of opening of new rights and, and uh, new resources for people really every place in the world, the amount of literacy that grew, the improvement in health conditions. It's not all just because of goodwill, but in any case, it happened. Right. Conditions really improved dramatically from 1945 to 1975. Um, and then there has been a clampdown since, and so that's expressed in passive voice uh, what's going on. Certainly, neoliberal ideology takes over and argues that, no, we need to have um, um, uh, an end to any regulation of big corporations. Um, the the all of these independent movements and new national regimes and so forth uh, fell um, to to the problems of their own inexperience, and you can look back and see new regimes, you know, typically run into into problems in the in the early days. That included the, the U.S., even though it was exceptionally fortunate. Uh, so there are, you know, there was there has been a um, uh, just a lot, of, a lot of things that have have gone wrong. Uh, um, amongst them, the ability to really be critical of the system as it is, as in some ways got stronger, in other ways got worse. You know, so I don't know. I, th I just think there's need for more study on those questions. Right. I was, you know, Josh. I was tempted to say just based on you know Pat's book. Is uh, you know I don't know Pat how you feel about people invoking your book you know for some particular viewpoint but here we go is that uh, with that institutional rot you talk about Josh you know is that a lot of these institutions have outworn their evolutionary usefulness mm. uh, I was thinking about coal companies you know in other words if in, as Pat suggests institutions evolve from the specific historical conditions uh, biological cultural social conditions. Uh, that, uh, you know, as those conditions change, you know, that the institutions that were born of them, you know, may or may not any longer uh, translate into some kind of efficacy, you know, uh, or utility. So you get coal companies, you know, and in an yeah. age of, uh, you know, greenhouse yeah, gases yeah. and global warming. Yeah, but you still have politicians, you know, who are sort of trying to prop up, you know, I mean, Trump was doing yeah. that, you know, trying to prop up you know, the, the coal mining industry. And I bet if we were systematic and we looked at things like policing and some of these other institutions, we're living, if not in the age of uh, empire after all, we're living in the age of the afterlife of empire, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but we're stuck with these damn institutions, you know, that were created piecemeal and, and often improvised for specific interests and whatnot um, that, uh, you know, may or may not be, you know, have that kind of utility now in this, uh, you know, in this different context. So that that's... Pat, I don't know if I did you proud there, but that's <laughs> what I would take from your book. <laughs> um, uh, very, very nice. Um, I think, 
One the example that keeps going through my head is is that of uh, systems of of medical care, um, mm. and that with so I have I'm always in touch with uh, with Australia because I have a daughter who lives there, and there um, there's a country. It I mean, in particularly, it had a strong trade union movement, which is it meant racism, but it also meant um, uh, public service. And uh, the Australian uh, national health care is a everybody gets it uh, national health care system. It's not mm -hmm. perfect, but the mortality rates uh, as they range across social levels are much more even than they are here. And so to have the U.S. as a place which, um, you know, has the knowledge, but where nonetheless the educational system and the medical system run on uh, hierarchical profit based uh, w um, principles uh, just undermine sig significantly the health of the country and the um, the spread of education uh, so that's um, um, there anyhow that's the first thing when you say institutional rot that's what I think of yeah. <laughs> um, um, but over so I, I, I buy that. At a longer run, I do want to point out some th things that have, have changed. Um, the, the amount of new knowledge, uh, so just the expansion of universities from 1850 forward and the expansion of the social reach of universities um, has produced, uh, along with uh, research institutes and so forth. Just an accelerating amount of new knowledge. Now there's a question of who owns that knowledge. Um, and there's a big fight over that. You know, there are corporate interests who want to patent uh, every uh, home, rec home recipe uh, so that they own it and the creators don't. Um, but there's, there's uh, resistance to that as well. Um, and um, one of the fascinating groups to me is science journalists, people who uh, write up all of the new uh, discoveries in field after field uh, for popular audiences so that people who want to learn about what's going on uh, can, uh, can be pretty well informed. Um, so, uh, but, so that's uh, specialized knowledge, but also general knowledge has increased at, at, at least as rapid a rate. So literacy, you know, adult, the average adult on our planet is, uh, is literate. Mm. That's just totally different from yeah. 1950. Um, and also, and so they're, they're literate, but they're also, they have skilled in operating their electronic machines. They're, they have basic skills in calculation. Um, and uh, and so they have. That doesn't mean that they're going to speak up, but it means that they have an ability to inform themselves and to act. Um, and um, it's opening up. In particular, I've been interested to see the the all the little demands for gender equality, mm -hmm. uh, which involve you know sometimes it can be peaceable and pleasant, and in some cases it's just the most awful. awful uh, rapes and retaliations for rapes uh, that are going on, but there is nonetheless a, a a steady campaign for gender equality, which makes it easier for the all the separate what we used to call tribes to um, 
be in touch with one another, to listen to each other, to borrow each other's music and clothing styles rather than just hate each other. Mm. Um, so those those things are um, developing, and uh, and I um, one way I thought of it. Um, I was listening to Adam McEwen years ago as he was working in China with young people there uh, studying at just incredible um, rates of, of, uh, of activity, um, supported by parents who weren't educated but thought that was the right sort of thing to do, that there's in, in China this immense expansion of I'm th not thinking about the regime, I'm thinking about young people who are figuring right. out ways to live lives that that they want to live. And then I'm asking myself, what if it were possible in Africa for the same level of investment in, uh, in education and, and professional advance? Because mm. uh, we know well enough from those people who already have good educations from Africa uh, what they can contribute. And so that the, po the potential of avoiding the waste that has taken place in recent centuries and really all the earlier centuries because of oppression and misery and so forth. It's uh, um, something that is unfolding slowly. It doesn't answer the big questions of how to straighten out the management of resources overall, but it, it does suggest that there may be a lot more people involved in the decisions in the future than there have been in the past. That's a, a great statement to end on. This has been fantastic, Pat. Uh, loved having you on, and maybe we can have you back on at some later point as well to continue discussing these these topics because truly they're too big for one any one episode of a podcast. Um, it's been wonderful to talk with the with the two of you about these ideas and to scribble down all the new ideas right. I'm getting from you. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. So much gratitude, Pat. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your time with us. You can see it Well, that was really fantastic you know I'm again I'm not gonna kid you I I felt like a kid uh, in a candy store there at times you know uh, there was a there was a you know an abundance of, of riches as they say uh, to choose from as far as our conversation and you know I appreciate uh, if nothing else Pat's uh, patience with us because <laughs> I, I'm sure we were you know we were ready to go along uh, there with the questions and the and the uh, the comments, the insights, the follow-ups, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, as as we were getting near the end of our of our talk, I couldn't help but be struck. You know, let let it go and said that. You know what we're really doing here is we're <laughs> we are, are treating ourselves to an, I think an enormously important question, which is, you know, what what sorts of stories do we want to be telling uh, uh, ourselves these days? about the nature of who we are, how we arrived at this point in history, you know, why we live under the, the systems we do, and what does that path forward look like? And I think, you know, at base, you know, just aside from all the remarkable scholarship that he has built into this work and into his entire career, 
you know, it's still a question, isn't it, of, of what kind of stories do we want to tell? Absolutely. I mean, this is something I, I, I talked about just, you know, kind of briefly during the interview, but, but you know, part of what history should do is, is um, expand our, our imaginations about what has been and what can be. And so much of history has not done that, uh, particularly the kind of nationalist history we've been so critical of throughout the podcast. And so, you know, thinking of the past in terms of not a straight line, not as, you know, a series of moments that led inexorably to ourselves, but as a number of different paths that were taken or not taken, a number of options that existed and went away. Um, it's important, you know, on the one hand, you know, if, an, if a path wasn't taken, then I guess it's not important any longer, but it, it is important for us living in the now to understand that that also means there's not simply one path forward, um, that we can imagine a better world in many ways, as long as we have a better set of stories about the past as well. So this stuff is hugely important, and it's hugely important to think in the scale that that, that Pat does and, and that his book did as well, because it, it really helps us to see, I think, um, at root the fact of, of the reality of, of the common humanity of everybody on this planet. Um, it's so easy in this contemporary world to, to see the divisions and make those divisions the only thing that matters. But the reality is that we are a species. We are a unified species, one that shares the same biology, one that shares um, many of the same uh, you know, emotions. And, um, and it's, it's so important to remind ourselves that every once in a while because we can get caught in this idea of us versus them of I versus you, of, of all these things. Mm. But at root, you know, we were all part of that original community somewhere in East Africa that, um, you know, the first Homo sapiens, the first uh, users of syntactic language, that's, that's all of our history. And that's so important to, to focus on and, and, and think about and remember uh, because um, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. You know, I mean, listen, we all have an equal share in and responsibility for this human system of which we are a part, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and and look, and I, not to put, uh, I don't think it's putting too fine a point on actually, you know, as we think back to, you know, our discussion uh, during the interview with Pat uh, about policing, for example, and the... Mm. Uh, you know the the news of the week regarding the uh, the trial in in Minnesota is that it was the same just to pick an example okay you know is it was the same administration and and listen all of this started before the trump years and it continues on uh to this day after uh trump's administration but nevertheless to pick a discrete moment last summer you know when we had not only the murder of george floyd but then in the aftermath, this upswelling of, of uh, racial justice protest, that it was framed by those in the vanguard of power at the time, the Trump administration and, and, and his acolytes in the Senate and, and elsewhere. It was framed as uh, these protesters were framed as terrorists, as domestic terrorists. And the response mm -hmm. was to send in militarized security forces right into the cities of this country, including uh, places like, you know, Minnesota, but also in Minneapolis, but also uh, Portland, uh, as we recall, yeah. and elsewhere. And, and it's that same response of power that then also 
you know, was beating the drum of what it was calling patriotic history. In other words, mm. was decrying the 1619 project of the New York Times and, and even threatening, uh, what, the withholding of federal funds for schools that dared use materials from the 1619 project and putting forward its own version of patriotic history, you know, with the President's Commission on 1776. Well, you know, I mean, maybe maybe be inclined not to see necessarily a connection there, but I think you would, wouldn't you? In other words, the same regimes that are perpetuating these these harsh and repressive and militaristic policies, you know, that are racialized, that are directed at minority groups or out groups, et cetera, you know, the, the forces of colonialism, et cetera, are the ones that are trying to keep the story form tightly constricted and constrained to certain privileged tropes, certain privileged statues, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Certain yep. privileged narratives about privileged groups and, and reacting with, you know, a kind of violent disgust whenever those story forms are, are challenged, let alone when um, counter narratives are offered that are bigger, more expansive, more inclusive, and, and for our money at least, truer. Um, so yeah, Pat Manning is doing something here. He's doing something more than just writing another history book. You know, he's offering us a way of thinking, a way out, a kind of exit strategy from empire and colonialism and repression, I think, you know, to think about how the stories we tell about ourselves can be, you know, so much more supportive of the world we actually want to live in. Yeah, and as you know, I was saying a, a second ago, that's you're, you're you're right. That's that's the way out, right? Um, mm -hmm. Thinking in those in those broader ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to just say something else as as we start to, to kind of finish up here, which is that you know Pat is really a reminder of of the importance of of intellectual curiosity, um, of of maintaining that willingness to to ask big questions. Um, you know, when I was a, a grad student, he would he would sometimes say, "It's okay to ask questions." even if you don't have the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe I took that too literally at times. <laughs> like, uh, like it was much better asking the questions than, than answering them. But, but here's a, a scholar who um, really is asking the biggest questions you can in history and using all the resources available and all the different disciplines that he can access to, to, to answer those questions. But whether you're going to take, you know, put that kind of time and that kind of intellectual energy in, into it or not, it's, it's just a, such an important reminder that no matter where you are in your career, no matter what your career is, I would even say that we should always have that willingness to ask big questions. Um, and, you know, as best we can to pursue answers to those questions, because, you know, that's what keeps this whole project vital. That's what makes it, it work is, is not just accepting the answers that have come before, but, but, you know, digging in a little bit further and, and, and seeing, well, is this satisfactory what I'm being told? And if it's not, ask a better question come up with a better answer and see where it goes from there. I don't think it can be said any better than that, uh, partner. Well, thank you all for listening. Again, this was a very important episode for me and for, for us, uh, and I hope you enjoyed it, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again So you don't have to see what's happening Then now what's going on you see on TV, stop sucking a
cycle, so we were.